the whole point behind avalanche forecasts is they're a starting point for your daily planning. But people need to understand that what they are doing is providing an expert's idea of a pattern that exists across the landscape. It may or may not be what you encounter. And so always use them. They're great resources, but it's kind of like a weather forecast. Like if you get out there and it said no rain and it starts raining on you, <laughs> you need to reassess. <laughs> And you need to figure out what that means for your plan for that day. Do you just continue to have your picnic or do you change plans? Hello, everyone. Shanti here. Welcome back to the Out and Back podcast presented by Gaia GPS. And more specifically, welcome to the winter series of the Out and Back podcast as we gear up and get ready to head out into the backcountry for our winter adventures. For today's episode, Mary and I are talking with Simon Troutman from the National Avalanche Center. We're continuing with our focus on avalanche safety and a particular key element of that, avalanche forecasting. Reading an avalanche forecast is an essential part of planning for a trip to the backcountry, but it can be a little tricky to know what exactly you should be looking for in each forecast report and what to be wary of when heading out to the mountains. What are the main differences between moderate and considerable? What's the bottom line we should be looking for? That's what we're aiming to get answers on today with the help of our friend, Mr. Troutman. So very eager to get going, but real quick, we got to let you know that Gaia GPS has just released a brand new winter mode for its users. Fittingly, just in time for the winter season. Gaia's great in-house cartographers designed this new base map specifically for your favorite winter activities. There's a stronger emphasis on terrain, tree cover, and contours, which make it easier for you to navigate in an endless world of white. A special winter color palette as part of winter mode pairs perfectly with Gaia's other commonly used winter maps, like the slope angle maps, and yes, the avalanche forecast map. On top of that, you can see every run at the ski resort, along with Nordic, snowshoe, fat bike, and uphill trails. With industry-leading download efficiency and tiny file sizes that let you save your entire state in a flash, you can always have a map on hand even when you lose all cell service. So whether you're riding the lifts, sliding into the side country, or touring untouched terrain, bring Gaia Winter along with you so that you can always find your location and your way back. Right now, if you go to GaiaGPS.com podcast, you can get 40% off on a Gaia GPS premium membership through the end of 2021. That's G-A-I-A-G-P-S.com slash podcast for 40% off on a premium membership with Gaia GPS, the gold standard of backcountry navigation. And now, without further ado, let's hear from Simon Troutman. Thank you so much for joining us today, Simon. How about uh, you start by giving us a little bit of your background and where you're from and uh, what you do? Thanks, Shannon. My name is Simon Troutman. I uh, live in Bellingham, Washington. I grew up in Lander, Wyoming, and I work at the National Avalanche Center. Can you tell us a little bit about the National Avalanche Center? The National Avalanche Center is a forest service program that works as uh, we do we do two main things. The first is we provide guidance and technology to U.S. Avalanche Centers, and the second is that we manage the military artillery for avalanche control program. I'm actually curious about it, what the military control part of it uh, involves. So it's the uh, military artillery for avalanche control program. What that means is that there are eight or nine ski areas in the United States that use old howitzers, 105 millimeter howitzers, 
in their avalanche control programs. And in order to do that, post 9-11, the Forest Service leases these weapons from the Army and then lends them back to the ski areas. And the other role that the Forest Service plays is that we actually, we set up uh, agreements that allow us to purchase the ammunition and then give that ammunition to the ski areas. The take home is, is that weapons are highly regulated things. And so the role that we play is, is that of a kind of a facilitator where we can get these weapons, give them back to the ski areas, and then the ski areas can use them to make their areas safe. So they use them to make them safe by taking these giant howitzer cannons. I don't know what would you call that artillery. And then they shoot bombs at the slopes, hoping that they will avalanche and release the danger. Is that how that works? Yeah, in, in essence, they're, the artillery pieces are they're essentially large rifles. Um, and so they shoot a projectile. They're incredibly accurate. And so the benefit of these things is that once the ski patrols have their shot placements uh, set up, you can shoot them during storms. You can shoot them at night. The idea being that you can be highly accurate in inclement conditions and do some form of, of avalanche control without having people on the slope. And so Effectively, you can get out and touch areas that it's really hard to get people into or at times where it's really hard to run, say, a route through that area. So how does this work with the National Avalanche Center and kind of the regional information centers across the West? Yeah, like the National Avalanche Center versus like the Utah Avalanche Center. So depending on how you count them, there's give or take, there's about 20 avalanche centers in the U.S. that are independently operated. And out of those 20, 14 of them are operated by the Forest Service. One, the largest avalanche center in the United States is the state, the Colorado Avalanche Information Center, and it's operated by the state of Colorado. And then the remainder are private nonprofit groups, kind of community-oriented groups. And so the National Avalanche Center, which, like I said earlier, it's a Forest Service program. And so our job, first and foremost, is to support and guide the Forest Service Avalanche Centers, so those 14 centers that, that work under the federal government. And over the last several years, and really for, for probably the last decade, we've also spent a lot of time working with the state of Colorado as a strong partner, but we also work with the nonprofits. And the, and the whole goal of what we're trying to do is to take this very diverse set of avalanche forecasting operations and find ways to promote collaboration and communication within that group. And so to try and bring, whether it's everything from, from field safety to public communication, find ways to make the group more unified and standardize isn't the right, the right word, but really trying to harmonize the, the messaging that comes out of that group. So both in the way that people do their jobs and then also in the way that they communicate with the public. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And actually, I'm wondering, I know it's, again, not like standardizing everything, but like then how would this tie into, say, avalanche forecasting? So I think what might help is just to take even one step back. And so like, what is an avalanche center? And in essence, an avalanche center is several different things. But the, the first thing to understand is they avalanche centers are, are entities that work on a regional scale, so mountain range or larger scale, and that provide wintertime public safety information that revolves around avalanches. And so the 
um, most prominent way to do that is to produce something called an avalanche forecast. Avalanche forecasts <clears throat> in this, they occur at all different scales. But like I said, this scale is a regional scale. And so what these avalanche centers are doing is providing kind of a broad brush forecast or idea of what conditions are like over a mountain range. There are many different styles of forecasts. Like if you think about going out and looking, you know, especially over the last decade, if you um, look at a forecast, say, that comes from the Utah Avalanche Center versus a forecast that comes from the Northwest Avalanche Center versus one that comes from Colorado Avalanche Information Center. There's a variety of styles and models and designs that have been used. And so one of the things we've been working on recently is figuring out a way to bring those styles together into one recognizable design that can be easily used by any group. The philosophy behind the forecast is the same. One thing for people to think about is that, you know, scale really matters in these forecasts. And so if you go someplace like the Gallatin National Forest Avalanche Center, for example, and you look at the size of their zones compared to the Colorado Avalanche Information Center, you'll see that those zones are like, they're hard to even compare because the size is so different. And so you can imagine that a forecast for a much larger zone, to some degree, just kind of like by design, has to be a little bit more generic than a forecast for a smaller, more specific zone. And so one of the main differences with the Forest Service Group is that we have the ability to set our zone size. So we can, we can decide the scale at which we forecast. And that's something that I think, frankly, over the next 10 years is something I think that we'll probably see a lot of work and change around that idea of scale and trying to hone in on like what is the best scale to really be forecasting for in these communities. And, and the tricky thing is it's probably not a static, it's not a one-size-fits-all thing. So if I'm hearing you correctly, it sounds like maybe the National Avalanche Center is working on making kind of a standardized communication of avalanche forecasts across the many avalanche centers that exist regionally. You might pick up a forecast in Utah, and it'll look somewhat similar to, or at least the same format and the same language as one that you pick up at the Sawtooth Avalanche Center. Absolutely. I believe that it's in the public's best interest if our design and our communication tools, if not exactly the same, are very similar. And so one of the things the National Avalanche Centers has been working on for the last four or five years is a suite of common forecasting tools that we basically run a, a private website where avalanche centers can come and create things like forecasts, weather station maps, avalanche warnings media libraries, and a couple other things. And so one of the things that's new as of last year is that of those 20 some odd centers, 15 of them are now using this common forecasting platform, which means the workflow and the communications and design from each of those 15 centers is now the same. And so we're making great strides in this commonality and this harmonization, but we still have a, we still have a ways to go. And so one thing I would add to that is the goal is not to make everybody exactly the same, but as something Shanti said earlier that's so important, the goal is to make the information and the style of communication recognizable, which is very important. And so you have to use the same language, you have to use the same iconography, you need to use, you know, as much as you can, the same flow of information. 
And this is one of the key things that I want to get into because, you know, someone like me compared to say Mary, I am much less experienced in the backcountry, And eventually I do want to get more into backcountry skiing, but it would be helpful for like, if I went to say Washington or Idaho or Utah or Colorado or wherever, and I'm going to be reading these avalanche forecasts, I would love to be able to be looking for the same big things each time. So in one second, I want to get into like some of the key consistent things that everyone should be looking at when they read an avalanche forecast, regardless of where they are. But what I'm curious first about is the idea of like workflow, how often avalanche forecasts are being put together and being shared uh, with the public. Like what's that workflow like? If, if, you, if, if you just break it down into as, like as basic of a kind of a rubric as possible, there's two kinds of avalanche centers. The first is the type one center. Type one centers provide forecasts every day of the week during the winter months. Type two centers are smaller. They have limited resources. And so generally what they're doing is either providing a forecast or like an information summary, general information product, two to three days a week. In terms of workflow at the larger centers, people work seven days a week and they provide new information similar to a weather forecast. Every single morning or evening, new information is posted. The smaller centers, they, you know, with more limited resources, they generally choose to operate around the weekends. And there's a variety of methods there, but in general, you know, they're working three to four days a week. Can you give me an example of a type two center? Yeah, uh, the Wallawa Avalanche Center would be a good example of a type two center. Where is that? It's in, uh, <laughs> it's, it's based out of uh, La Grande, Oregon. So it's kind of east, eastern Oregon. Another would be the Missoula Avalanche Center, which, oh, is, which is actually the West Central Montana Avalanche Center. Easier to say Missoula. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But if, you know, for listeners, if or people that are familiar with, with avalanche.org, one of the questions that we get a lot, avalanche.org is basically a website that showcases collaborations and partnerships within the Avalanche Center group. And so the landing page will show you a, a daily avalanche danger map throughout the winter, the winter season. And one of the questions we get a lot is like, you know, if you go to that, that website, you'll see that some of the zones are colored in on a daily basis and some are, are gray with a blue outline. And it's like, well, what is the difference or why, why isn't there, you know, color in this one for today? What it's showing is that in those areas that are gray with a blue outline, it means that there's not a hazard rating for the day, but there is information available there. And in many cases, these smaller centers and even larger centers on like the shoulder seasons before they're actually forecasting, they will put up these short synopsis analysis of what they know about conditions. It's good information. They just don't have enough information to actually like define the, the avalanche danger. That's good information because we actually have the avalanche forecast layer in Gaia GPS, and that arises often where you pull up a certain area and the area is shaded gray. And if you click on it more, you do get to the avalanche report that was last issued. But like you said, it's not the daily report when you see the colored shades. So yeah, good, good information. Simon, when, when can we reasonably expect avalanche centers either type one or type two to start issuing reports and forecasts? What time of the year? 
It's variable this time of the year. Um, it you know it's a mix of uh, conditions based reporting versus resources. It really is based on conditions and whether or not places are getting snow. But for those type one avalanche centers, the the larger centers that have enough resources to work seven days a week, they generally like people start working kind of mid October, early November. And they'll start forecasting when there's enough snow on the ground to recreate in a reasonable fashion. And so there's there's this time of year where there's always kind of a hard choice, you know, where you're like, okay, we have enough snow now. Do we start forecasting or is it all going to melt? And then we're just have to like twiddle our thumbs for a month. And so they always try to they try to do as best they can. But if there's legitimate and widespread hazard, those operations will will start putting forecasts out. So then I want to circle back to that first question that I was going to ask about when these forecasts start coming out, what are the main consistent things that everyone should be looking for in each forecast? I think the most important thing to understand about, about avalanche danger or the hazard that, that humans will encounter in the mountains when they're recreating or around avalanche terrain is that it's not a static thing. It's highly dynamic. And which means that it changes day to day. But to be more succinct, avalanche danger is different every single day. Like it goes up, it goes down, it stays the same for a while. But so when you're looking at avalanche forecasts, I think the the best thing to watch is just they they give you a window into the fluctuation of the relative danger on a day-to-day basis. And you can use that for one zone. Or you can use it for the whole country. You know, you can you can watch the pattern nationally or you can watch the pattern locally. But that is an incredibly helpful thing because by understanding the pattern and the ups and downs of danger, it allows you to, it's kind of your beginning planning point. And so the danger is a broad brushstroke of conditions. And right off the bat, just based on the color on the map, you can kind of get a feel for whether you're like, dealing with something that's very acute, problematic, that you need to be very worried about, or something that's maybe, you know, more subtle and and specific. And so colors matter, and it's common for people to get pretty, you know, confused and wrapped up in the danger scale. But the the reality is, is like, we all kind of know what green, yellow, orange, red, and black mean, you know, or we can, we can assume, I think, you know, first glance, the color gives you a sense of what you're dealing with. But it's really basic and it's really broad. And and the way that the forecasts are built is that they're they're structured in kind of a pyramid fashion. So you get the most simple information up front. And that information is designed to be assimilated by a variety of user types. Anybody from the regular person that knows nothing about avalanche dangers all the way up to um, somebody that's a professional in the field. And so you start simple, and then as you go through the forecast, the information gets uh, more specific, more nuanced, and um, definitely requires more training and knowledge and analysis to to really understand it. Along those lines, the way that our, our common platform is structured now, you start out with a danger icon and then something called the bottom line. And the bottom line is a, it's a structural piece. It's, it's like, if you had to tell your best friend or your daughter, what would you tell your daughter before you sent her outside today? 
that's what the bottom line is meant to do. You know, you're like, what is the essence of the day? You want to set the tone and you want to tell them what to think about, where it's at and how to how to avoid it. And so it's simple, standalone messaging that kind of like sets the tone for the rest of the forecast. Truly, if people looked at nothing else on a given day, I would say do a little bit of studying, understand the danger scale and how it works, but then read the bottom line. And um, some days that's enough and other days that should make you dive much deeper into the product. So what what is the thing that would make you want to dive deeper into the product? What kind of language are we looking for in the bottom line that would make you go, oh, I should look into this even more? Avalanche danger or hazard is um, like this ordinal scale, which is five levels. We've put five boxes around a continuum that goes from at the very bottom, no avalanches anywhere, to the very top, which is every slope that you can imagine is avalanching in a climactic fashion. Humans, we love these constructs, and frankly, we have to have them or we can't communicate. But unfortunately, once we create a construct, we like get stuck in it and we don't see it for what it is. And so I think the, the important thing to understand is what we're trying to do with these avalanche forecasts is like the simple broad brush is this, this hazard or this color, but the nuances are what are so important. And there's a lot of space in each one of those five boxes, right? So the scale is not a linear scale. It appears linear. It goes one, two, three, four, five. But actually, it's probably closer to like an exponential scale. So if you think about your chances encountering an avalanche at the, at the bottom in low, you know, low danger doesn't mean that you can't encounter an avalanche. It just means that it's not probable or not as probable as the next jump up. But so if this scales exponential, which it, it most likely is, um, then that means that, you know, you're several times more likely to encounter an avalanche at moderate than you are at low, which means you're even several more times as likely to encounter it under considerable than you are at moderate. And then the same applies to high. And so if we give that like a factor of two, it would go two at low to four at moderate to eight at considerable to 16 at high to 32 at extreme, right? So this it just starts to grow um, in a rapid fashion. And so I think to get back to your question, Mary, I think one, it's important for people to understand that the scale works in that way. Like the difference in encountering an avalanche at considerable is much, 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 much higher than at moderate. But to answer your question, like why should people look lower? People should look deeper into the forecast because every day is different. And it's a forecaster's job to illustrate a pattern and tell people about what makes that day different? What can you look for and observe in the landscape that can help yourself stay safe? So it's an illustration of somebody's idea of a pattern. And certainly you mentioned that it can change day by day, but honestly, I mean, weather changes hour by hour sometimes. I mean, the winds can pick up, there can be solar warming on a slope when you didn't expect it. I mean, it's all probabilities, right? Yes, we, we forecast on a 24 hour period. But the forecaster's discretion, there's a lot of discretion around how to best communicate what's going to happen in that 24-hour period. 
And so that's an, it's a great point that you just brought up. So when you're reading the bottom line, if there's a significant change during the day, it will probably say so in the bottom line. And then it'll give you more information further down in the forecast under the avalanche problems or in the discussions talking about, hey, today you might start out and things are relatively quiet. Storm comes in at noon and the avalanche danger is going to quickly ramp up into the afternoon. And so if you see, you know, there'll be some examples of things to watch out for. If you see A, B, and C start to happen, then it's time to, you know, dial it back and, and move to sheltered or shallower terrain type of thing. I think about the differences between, and we were talking about this a little bit, the linear scale, but like how it doubles when it goes from moderate to considerable. There seems to be, I think, some confusion about there out there that exists about, okay, what's the difference between moderate and considerable going from that yellow to that orange thing? Like, what are the big things we need to be looking for when we're out there and we see a scale that's moderate versus considerable? Yeah, the scale tends to this both the scale and the messaging built in and around the scale tend to work pretty darn well on the two ends of the spectrum so when you're at low or up at high or extreme you know it's like at one you're like oh it's generally safe today avalanche wise and on the other you're like oh my god the house is falling down just like stay out of avalanche terrain but it's those two spots in the middle moderate and considerable yellow and orange that's where a lot of the decision-making occurs. One, because they are kind of, you know, in the middle of the scale. And and two, because mo frankly, most of the days of the year are going to be moderate or considerable in most years. It's just kind of where we end up. And so I think the take-home is, in a very general sense, the difference between the two is that at considerable, you have a higher likelihood of encountering an avalanche. Simple to say that. In practice, it's not so simple. And um, I think, though, like at a basic level, internalize that. If it's orange, you have a higher level, higher chance, higher probability of encountering an avalanche than if it's yellow. There are caveats to that, though. And one of the things that forecasters do on a day to day basis is if their guidance is kind of falling apart in terms of like, what danger level to assign they always end up going back and focusing on the travel advice that they want people to remember for that day so if if it's a complicated day on that line of that continuum and you're right on the edge between moderate and considerable the forecaster will think okay do i want people to be thinking about avalanches and in specific places and just avoiding those places or do i want people to be more cautious than that and kind of dialing it back a little bit. I'm trying to think of a succinct way to really get at what I'm feeling about your question. Like it's the moderate considerable question is a really, a really good one. Yeah. And I mean, like maybe here's a way we can break it down. I'm actually looking on, you know, on avalanche.org at the differences between like moderate and considerable. So like moderate yellow says, you know, heightened avalanche conditions on specific terrain features, evaluate snow and terrain carefully, identify features of concern. Whereas considerable, it doesn't mention those. It says dangerous avalanche conditions, careful snowpack evaluation, cautious route finding, and conservative decision-making essential. And so I guess we could maybe break that down. Like if you have a moderate rating, a yellow rating, 
like what specific terrain features should you be looking for? What would be the main things that you evaluate in terms of snow and terrain when you're out there? The answer to that is that it depends. And that's why the rest of the avalanche <laughs> forecast is so important. When you get to the forecast, you, you get the avalanche danger in the bottom line. And then the next layer of the forecast are avalanche problems. And so avalanche problems are an extension of the danger scale are composed of four things, the, the character or the type of avalanche that you're going to encounter that day, where it's at in the terrain, like what aspects and what elevations, how likely you are to trigger it, and then how big it will likely be. Okay, so those four things are an avalanche problem. And then within that block, so there's a series of icons that, that, that lay, those, lay that out for you. And then there's a text box that talks specifically to that pattern that a forecaster created with the icons. And so to get to your question, like on a moderate day, how are you going to look for those specific features? You need to go to that avalanche problem and see what you're dealing with. Are you dealing with just like small, loose, dry sloughs for the day? Or are you dealing with something that's a lot that's that's big and scary and just low probability but very high consequence? Avalanches are different, different kinds at different times. Some are stubborn to trigger. Some are really easy to trigger. Some are are tiny and not even a problem generally, unless you're in scary terrain. And some are huge and scary and they change the landscape. And so. The avalanche problem section is your chance to kind of dig into what animal are you dealing with today? And to get back to your, your point, like if it's a moderate day, you can look at the problems and it should paint a pretty good picture for what to look for and what to avoid. I guess the way we should be reading avalanche reports is we should open them up, read the forecast, see what the danger rating is for the day look at the bottom line, and then dig a little deeper in the avalanche problems. And then if there's something in the avalanche problems, delineating which slopes are dangerous on the aspect and elevation, make your decisions on where to avoid specific terrain based on those. Is that how we should go in, in that order? I think everyone has a different order. Mm -hmm. How do you do it? For me, the take, well, it depends on the day. It's good to know. I think that, uh, Frankly, you know, it's like we started with some days are dangerous and some days aren't, but understanding what avalanche you're dealing with or what series combination of avalanches you're dealing with on a given day is the place to always to start. And so some days, maybe all somebody needs is to just take a glance at the bottom line and they say, so for imagine you're going out on a really mellow tour in an area that maybe there's some avalanche terrain, but it's not very steep, it's not very big, you know the area well, and you take a glance at the forecast and it's green for that day. Maybe that's as far as you need to go because you're like, you know, looks pretty safe. This is really small terrain and um, I've, I've been skiing here all year, I feel good about it. Another day, maybe you're kind of thinking about a larger objective in an area that's has terrain that's much more dangerous, maybe you don't know it as well there's a storm coming in and you look at the avalanche forecast and it's considerable and the bottom line tells you that you know not only are you dealing with this new snow issue but there's a deeper persistent slab problem 
that is really scary and really has a high level of uncertainty. On that day, I would say you should dig all the way through that report, maybe even look at the couple days before and really think about your terrain choices on that day and how you can, from the get-go, before you even leave the house, make a plan that's not going to put you in harm's way. So I think to get back to your point though, Mary, yes, like the whole point behind avalanche forecasts is there a starting point for your daily planning. Whatever your daily planning entails, everybody has a little bit different system, but I think they're a planning piece and they're not the way it is. Some days they're a close approximation, very close approximation, but people need to understand that what they are doing is providing an expert's idea of a pattern that exists across the landscape. It may or may not be what you encounter. And so always use them. They're great resources, but it's kind of like a weather, a weather forecast. Like if you get out there and it said no rain and it starts raining on you, <laughs> you need to reassess <laughs> and you need to, you need to figure out what that means for your plan for that day. Do you just continue to have your picnic or do you change plans? And so if you're looking at an avalanche forecast and, and you get the impression there are no hazards for that day and you go out and you see things like natural avalanches or cracking and collapsing, or it starts to snow so hard that you can't see and the wind's blowing, that may, you know, it's time to reassess and realize that you're, you're probably entering a situation where the avalanche danger is, is spiking. Unfortunately, though, it doesn't go the other way where if the avalanche, uh, forecast says that it's going to be very dangerous and you go out and you're not seeing any evidence of danger, it's probably not a good idea to ramp it up and go bigger because you just may be missing uh, whatever pattern it was that the that the expert on the other end was keying in on. So you're talking about these patterns. How valuable is it to read the day's forecast that you're going to go skiing for and also read the previous day's forecast or the days before it forecast? How far should people go back to really get a good glimpse of the patterns? I think it really depends on what your application is, what you're doing with it. And it depends on the pat the weather pattern too, you know? So if you're in a place where conditions change incredibly rapidly, like where I live in the Northwest, Pacific Northwest, if you're in a storm cycle and you're four days into it, you may or may not get anything from the forecast four days ago because things are just changing and you've got feet upon feet upon feet of new snow. Um, if you're in a place where you're say in the doldrums and it's very static and say four days ago, the avalanche danger was high and today the avalanche danger is low, it's probably worth going back those four days and reading why it was high and trying to get a get a good picture about like why did it change so fast? Why why did it go from high to low, you know, in four days, which can happen, but it doesn't happen very often. Um or if you're going somewhere where you don't typically go. So sometimes I'm lucky enough to go up and go skiing in Canada. And I don't live in Canada. I don't pay attention to their forecasts. And so before I go to Canada, I'll generally read a week or two of forecasts for the area I'm going to before I go up just to try and like get my own mind wrapped around the pattern and what has been happening. Forecasts are in the past, but a lot of times there's a quota just bounced through my head and I, I can't pull it out of the ether. But the gist of it is that the past is now in some way. 
And avalanches happen because there's structural weakness in the snowpack. And you can find those structural weaknesses if you go and look at, at the history. And so especially if you're going into a storm system, sometimes it's really good to understand what's happened with the last storm system. But frankly, that's a forecaster's job. Like their job is to create something that tells you what's important. for. So if an area has the resources and has good forecasters, they're doing that analysis. Like they're doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Like it is their job to get up every day and think about this stuff. Where that breaks down in is places that are either underserved or in places that, you know, not everywhere has an avalanche forecast. And some of these smaller centers work two or three days a week. And in that case, you may be skiing on a Wednesday or riding on a Wednesday. And the last product was the Saturday before. And it doesn't mean that that information is bad, but it means it needs to be taken with a grain of salt. And so it's good to read it, think about it, but then you have to do your own analysis and decide, like, what does it mean? It's a great puzzle with a lot of pieces to it. That's the way I see it. <laughs> and no definitive answer. Well, avalanches are awesome. It's <laughs> like my, my boss says, you know, he's like, what a cool, amazing phenomenon. Like, they're really the only natural hazard that we can trigger, right? We can't trigger True. a flood. We can't. I mean, you can put, people can put things in place that cause floods, right? But in an mm -hmm. acute sense, like you can't just go walk out and step on something and cause a flood. Um, you can't go step on something and cause an earthquake, but you can go step on something or drive on something and cause an avalanche. And um, that's a pretty neat thing. And so the other thing about it is that not only can we cause them, but the conditions that we like to recreate in tend to, in many cases, be the conditions that avalanches like to occur in. So <laughs> like when it's snowing, the skiing and the riding is great, right? Oh, yeah. Um, it's way more fun to snowmobile in 12 inches of soft snow than it is to snowmobile on hard, bulletproof, windswept tundra. And so we're actually putting ourselves into the environment in many cases at times when we are the most vulnerable or the most exposed to avalanches. Another take home is that my job or our job as avalanche forecasters is to give people or the public or recreators the best information we have to allow them to plan their day and to make decisions that keep them safe. My job is not to keep people safe. So I'm not defining someone's avalanche risk. I'm giving them an idea of what the hazard is. And it's people's job to take that information and manage their own risk, if that makes sense. Absolutely. You provide the information, but you're not the hand holder. We're not holding hands and we can't hold hands. Like people have different risk thresholds. Even if we could, it would be impossible to do, right? So at the end of the day, it's about providing good information, but it's the public's job to take that information and apply it to their own worldview, philosophy, lifestyle, et cetera. I think it's safe to say the goal should always be using that information to figure out a way to get home safe. I agree. I think that's a very good way of looking at it. I feel like I read somewhere on your website that snow causes more fatalities than any other natural hazard on the Forest Service land. Yeah, if you look at it just over time on public forest service land, more people die in avalanches and of, and snow immersion 
than they do in, in wildfires or floods. Interesting. And I, I just kind of want to get back to that discussion we were having earlier that Shanti brought up between moderate and considerable. As far as those danger ratings go, how do those rate compared to the number of fatalities? I was just about to ask that question. That's, too. A, great, that's <laughs> a great question. Um, it's an excellent question. So it, it depends on on where in the country, like what scale you put the analysis at. Are you looking like nationally? Are you looking at, at just one state? But in general, most accidents in the United States happen at considerable, but an awful lot happen at moderate as well. And if you take the two, more accidents are happening at moderate and considerable than are happening at high. And there's a bunch of reasons for that. One is like we talked about earlier, or this is conjecture, but messaging is pretty easy when we're at the high end of the scales. You know, it's scary out there. You can tell people that. And frankly, people can recognize it because like you're seeing avalanches. It's just one of those days that in most cases, people stay out, not always, but generally people can kind of just keep themselves out of harm's way. Moderate considerable take a lot more one, they're happening more often, like we talked about earlier. We have more days at moderate considerable than we do at high. But the other is that they take a fair bit of decision-making and analysis and just self-kind of self-management. And, and they're highly nuanced. You know, there are those days where it really, in many cases, not always, but in many cases, the designation between moderate and considerable may be less important than the type of avalanche you're dealing with. You can, for example, you can have a considerable avalanche hazard with a lot of small avalanches. You know, they're, they're small, they're reactive, they're easy to kind of you know where they're going to be, right? Soft slabs, if you get caught in them, unless you're in a terrible terrain trap, maybe they just trundle you down the hill. Um, but you can have a moderate day where you have these stubborn avalanches that are three to four feet deep. They're really hard to trigger. There's a lot of uncertainty about it. But if you do trigger one, it's probably going to kill you because it's so big and destructive. So it really comes back to the danger scale is important. It gives us a broad brush stroke. It gives us a starting point. But really understanding those avalanche problems and what they are, you know, how easy are they to trigger? How big are they? What are they going to look like? Where are they going to be in the terrain? That is how you can basically set yourself up to make good decisions on those days that are either yellow or orange and you're having a hard time deciding, you know, uh, how to manage your terrain or where to go. We had Bruce Tremper on last year. I won't get this right, but he said something like, you know, the snowpack is often unpredictable, but terrain is always your reliable best friend, meaning that you can select terrain to avoid avalanche danger. When you're looking at the avalanche forecast, what are some of the things that you see on the report that would make you want to choose a less than 30 degree route that day? That is a really good question. <laughs> it's really hard to answer. Um, it, 
it depends, right? I mean, it that's depends. Like it depends on the, standard the answer avalanche here. dragon that you're dealing with. But in general, if you are, if you're looking at the, at the avalanche forecaster, and it is it is telling you that, you know, you can trigger avalanches today, or that you can remote trigger avalanches or which means trigger avalanches from across the slope or from below the slope that the avalanche breaks on or you are heading into an intense storm cycle with high winds and heavy snowfall rates um a variety of things like weather so there's a couple things to key on there's are there structural things in the snowpack that would mean that you can trigger big avalanches from below. That's so you're talking like a persistent weak layer if you have or a, like a persistent, slab. A persistent slab, say. They're not always easy to trigger, but if they are there and the structure is such that forecast is talking about remote triggering, that's always a sign that you need to adjust your terrain accordingly to get back to your question. So, like, are you going to walk up into, you know, an avalanche start zone on a day where there is a persistent weak layer that you're likely to trigger. You shouldn't. Are you going to walk into a big slide path with a lot of overhead hazard, which means you have a, a huge mountain or, or even a, a small mountain over the top of you where snow is actively loading into that start zone, like you're in the middle of a storm? No, you shouldn't. Um, are you going to start up the sunny side of a mountain in the morning, knowing that about the time that it gets hot, you're going to be underneath really steep rocks and snow. No, you probably shouldn't, you know. And so to get back to your point, Bruce's point about terrain, absolutely. If you think about avalanche risk, it's a function of hazard, vulnerability, and exposure. And so if the hazard doesn't exist, there isn't much risk, right? If you're not vulnerable to the hazard, there isn't much risk of a very small avalanche. If you're not exposed to the hazard, then there isn't much risk. And so terrain deals with the exposure side of it. If you don't go into avalanche terrain, if you don't expose yourself to the hazard, you can walk around all day long and be just fine. But if you go into that terrain where that hazard exists or where that avalanche type exists, then you are taking on considerable risk depending on the day and where you are in that continuum of the likelihood of triggering avalanches. Does the report include a section about recent avalanches? And how would you use that in your decision making? It does. I think the, the single most important thing that you can ever key in on is avalanching, right? If there's recent avalanching, it means that there is a chance you're going to trigger one. It's just, it's like... <laughs> As you guys have, have uh, picked up on today, like I struggle because so many of these things are, well, it depends, well, it depends, well, it depends. <laughs> the one thing that doesn't depend is if you're seeing avalanches within 24 hours, even 48 hours, like it means there's a significant chance you can trigger one. It is information that you cannot, they call it bullseye information, like you can't ignore it. If you see an avalanche, it means that if you go into a place like that, you'll likely trigger one. And to get back to Shani's question, you know, earlier, like this difference between moderate and considerable, almost most of the time, one of the main differences is at considerable hazard, you can expect there to be 
the possibility for natural avalanches to occur. And at moderate hazard forecasters are pretty sure that that natural avalanche is not going to occur. And so if you expect natural avalanches could occur, that means a human triggering an avalanche, there's actually a really good chance of that. So basically what you're saying with the recent avalanches is if you look at the report and you see that other avalanches have been reported in that area, you can expect that if you're going to go on those slopes too, you are likely also to trigger an avalanche. That's just kind of like if the weather forecast says it's likely to rain today and you look outside and it's raining and you go outside, you're going to get wet. Yeah, they're a huge part of the analysis. One of the things avalanche centers do is they track avalanches that are either observed or witnessed by the public. They're using that to create both these avalanche problem sets and the avalanche danger rating for the day. What you'll see in the in the forecast a lot of times is there'll be pictures of these avalanches or lists or tables of, of their occurrence. So yep, super important to pay attention to them when reading and and realize like if you're if someone is showing you a picture of an avalanche, there's a reason. <laughs> it means that this is happening, yeah. right? Um, but even more important is when you go outside and when you're not reading somebody's, you know, morning communication, rather you're walking through the terrain and you're thinking and you're having fun and you're going about your day. When you see avalanches or signs of avalanches, um, you should slow down and reassess. Like, is this thing three days old or is it 30 minutes old? And if you actually witness one, hopefully you've already made that terrain choice that, that puts you on a ridge above it or on, you know, the other side of the valley rather than, than right underneath it. So, <laughs> like, they're actually, they're only dangerous if you're in them. But, um, you know, snow is, a, is an incredible medium and it's actually really heavy. You know, a cubic meter of snow is, can be around a thousand pounds. And so... Like imagine a hillside and what that weighs and what it can do. And, um, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't take much to, you know, we're pretty small and we're pretty fragile. Uh, when you think about, you know, even a small snow slope that's in motion. One last thing on the recent avalanches, when you're looking at them, how recent is recent? What time frame should you be worried about? Is it like within the last 24 hours, the last 12 hours? Or what if it were several days before there was an avalanche there? It really depends on the type of avalanche. If you're looking at, say, wet loose avalanches that occurred the day before and then it froze down solid overnight, maybe there isn't a hazard that day. If you're looking at persistent slabs that released the day before, I'd ha I have a hard time thinking up a really good reason that they wouldn't still be a concern 24 hours later. It's possible, but not probable. And how about fresh snow or new snow during the storm cycle? That's a whole different thing. That's a whole different thing. I think the easy thing there is like if it's storming and you're seeing snow move, it's dangerous. And it will stay that way until it uh, stabilizes for some reason, which is always related to time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of time, Simon, when are avalanche reports issued for the day? Most avalanche centers, the forecast comes out at around seven in the morning. There are some exceptions. The Northwest Avalanche Center 
forecast the evening before and the product comes out at six o'clock um, in the evening for the next day. But most of them come out the morning of. And do they carry an expiration time or date? They're valid for 24 hours. If the systems are working, they're replaced either with a general product or another forecast. So, Simon, there was one of the question I had about uh, what what goes in the avalanche report specifically regarding weather and snow and how people should be looking at that. Like, what are the main things that people should be looking for when they're looking in there? In our forecast, we include a weather section because it is so fundamental to both the creation of the forecast itself. You know, weather, you can think about it as, as it really it's the kind of the architect of the snowpack. If there's going to be a change during the day, it's going to be because of the weather whether that's temperature or precipitation or a combination of the two or high winds, all these things can control really, they control our environment that we're moving through on a given day. I think what people should and could key in on, it's, it's no different than using weather in any other form of planning in our lives, right? You, you take a look at the weather forecast, you get an idea about, you know, how cold is it going to be? Now I know what to wear today. Um, are the winds going to bleed? blowing really hard. So in, in addition to avalanche danger ramping up with high winds, maybe it's not a good day to be on a ridgeline. There's all these ways that we use weather in our lives that are perfectly applicable to recreating an avalanche terrain as well. But in terms of avalanches, I think the biggest thing is like you have this picture in your mind of what the weather is going to be for the day. And if you get out there and the weather is not meeting that picture, then it's time to reassess. You know, does is the weather doing something that could increase the avalanche danger? Or is the weather doing something that that is actually kind of a wash? And so, for example, if the weather report says that you're going to get three inches of new snow and the avalanche danger is moderate for the day, uh, you know, that look at the problems and the avalanche problems are relatively small and not that worrisome, but you get out there and instead of three inches of snow, you got nine inches of snow and some higher winds, there's a really good chance you need to reassess and that forecast isn't, isn't necessarily valid for where you're at. Same goes with, say, temperature. If, you know, the forecast says partly cloudy skies and, you know, 25 degrees and you get out there and it's full sun, and 48 degrees, maybe it's a different day. You know, it's it's not matching up. And so the thing for people to understand is that the avalanche forecast is predicated on the weather forecast. And so if the weather forecast doesn't materialize or validate, then there's a good chance the avalanche forecast is a little off as well. Okay, bottom line here, avalanche forecast, the report, how much stock should people put in that in their decision making? I think it should be the foundation of people's planning process. If your question is about planning, I would say they should put a lot of stock in it. If your question has to do with you've already done your plan and you're in the field and you see something that leads you to believe the avalanche danger is higher than you believed previously when you read the report, then I think that you have new information and, and it should take precedence over the forecast. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So use it to plan your day, but always use independent observations in the field to make your final decisions as you're going. Yes, you said it much better than me. <laughs> oh, okay. Simon, what is your actual title over there? My title is National Avalanche Specialist. 
which means that uh, I'm like truck guy. I like talk on the phone a lot. <laughs> Do you get out in the field much still? They allow me to go out a couple days a week, but um, it's more like a token. <laughs> That's what happens sometimes. No, it's fun. I um, I really like working on big picture stuff, and this job allows me to work with a lot of different people in a lot of different places around the country, and so I I really enjoy it. How are you feeling about this season so far? Oh, I'm a I'm an optimist. I feel good about it. Everybody wants to know: Is it going to snow, or how much is it going to snow, and are we going to have a bad avalanche here? And um, I just don't. I, I have no. I'm no good at, at prophecy. So <laughs> I always just say yes. It's going to snow, <laughs> and yes, we will have some avalanche accidents. But I always hope that it snows a lot and the accidents are low. I think the only thing I would add, though, is, you know, last year was tough and there's a lot of reasons for that. But one of the things that, you know, especially upon reflection that I believe is that I can't really describe, like, what is the impact that that COVID and the scenario that has unfolded with it, what is the impact on, say, avalanche fatalities or our recreation? And and I don't know. What I do know is that this COVID scenario that we're in is stressing almost everybody I know in one way or another. It doesn't matter what side of the political spectrum you're on. It doesn't matter what you believe about the ins and outs of any of it. It is a stressor. And when we have stressors, stressors affect our decisions and they affect how we act in certain situations. And so I think it's plausible to recognize and realize and internalize that whatever we have going on at home affects the way we act when we recreate. And simply recognizing that and factoring it in, I think is so, so important going into this season. This stuff's supposed to be fun. Yes. And I think we're all desperately seeking fun and maybe puts us in a position to take on more risk sometimes when we're stressed out. We've invested the time to get out there and we've skinned up the hill, sweated all the way to the top. And it's hard to pick the safe choice down when the conditions don't match up, especially when you're so desperately looking for a good time out there. So I, I hear what you're saying. Yep. You know, a good friend of mine that works at the Sawtooth Avalanche Center was gave a presentation the other day. He believes that as a community or as a society, we are taking more avalanche risk than we realize. I've been chewing on that a bit for the last couple of weeks. And I can't say that that I disagree. I think that this avalanche environment is a tricky one because just because you don't get avalanche doesn't mean that you made a good decision. A lot of times it just means you didn't touch the sweet spot, right? Um, Absolutely. And so it's really hard to get good feedback. And the other part of it is that they are very dangerous. And so if if you're caught in them, and so say even if only one in 10 times, you have a chance to trigger an avalanche just for sake of discussion. But if you do trigger that avalanche, it's going to be very dangerous and destructive. Like, is that an acceptable probability or situation to put yourself in? So like if you got on the highway and one in 10 trips to the store, you had a really high chance of like running off the road or hitting another car. How would we deal with that? Would we take that risk? 
that type of analysis is hard with snow because we don't know. Is it one in 10 times? Is it one in 20? Is it one in two? But the take home, I think, is that avalanches are beautiful. They're super interesting, um, whether it's science or just the aesthetics of them. I think they're one of the neatest things that, that humans interact with in terms of just phenomenon and studies. They have this really interesting mix of beauty and terror. Well, great, Simon. Thank you so much for taking the time with us. Uh, it's a super tough job. You know, somebody's got to do it. <laughs> <laughs> How am I just imagining you powder skiing out there day after day after day? I, I, I wish I wish I still lived that life. <laughs> awesome. Now, well, I'm, thank I'm you nothing for... more than a computer jockey. <laughs> we'll share all the links online. Is there anything else you want us to share? Um, Avalanche.org. Thank you guys. Yeah, if, if people haven't uh, seen avalanche.org, check it out. It's, uh, it's a great resource and it's a great shuttle to all the avalanche centers in the U.S. And um, stay safe and have a good winter. Thank you so much, Simon, for coming onto the show and sharing your expertise with us. We said this before in our episode with Nikki Champion, but I think it bears repeating that our sincere appreciation goes out to those who work with avalanche forecasting at avalanche centers across the country. You're providing us with the tools and insight we need to be able to make good decisions against the potential risks we face in the backcountry. And because of that, it improves our odds of both having wonderful experiences and returning home safely. Make sure to check out the National Avalanche Center at avalanche.org, where you can also find information on avalanche courses. And of course, make sure to check out your local avalanche center for the latest avalanche forecasts before heading out into the backcountry. If you like today's show, we'd love it if you could head on over to Apple Podcasts and give us a nice glowing five-star review. And if you have a little more energy left after that, feel free to check us out and give us a follow on Instagram at outandbackpodcast. And then finally, if you haven't already, make sure to head on over to GaiaGPS.com slash podcast to get a 40% discount on a Gaia GPS premium membership through the end of 2021. I'm Shanti, along with Mary. Thanks for joining us today and stay safe out there, everyone. We'll see you next time on the Out and Back podcast presented by Gaia GPS. Bye-bye.